Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Persuasion Play Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Thomas from PersuasionReadingList.com, where I write about, tweet about, and podcast about persuasion, motivation, influence, mindset, and marketing. Today, we're talking with best-selling author and pro poker champion, Annie Duke. Annie's new book, How to Decide, is out October of 2020. She's also authored Thinking in Bets, which discusses risk and reward. Her new book is an extension of some of the ideas from that first book. Thank you, Annie, so much for taking my call today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I found your new book, How to Decide, really interesting. It really provides a number of tools for translating our ideas of risk into estimated probabilities and then how we can use those probabilities to make better decisions by removing a lot of the emotion from, from the situation. Uh, maybe you can walk us through that opening exercise about the best and worst decisions of our last sure. year. Yeah, so I would actually encourage anybody listening to take a moment to imagine the, what, how you would answer these two questions. The first is, what's your best decision of the last year? You know, pause and think about that. And then uh, what's your worst decision of the last year? And pause and think about that. And once you have those two things in your head, now what I would ask you is, did your best decision work out well? And did your worst decision happen to work out poorly? So I'm waiting to come across somebody who answers no to either of those questions. I'm sure, I'm sure after the book comes out, it will happen because people will know that I really like to do this exercise. But what you can see is actually just that when I ask you uh, what's your best decision of the last year, people generally think about what's the best thing that happened last year. Like what was my best outcome? And when you ask what the worst decision of, of the last year was, people think about what the worst outcome was. And the reason for that is, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but it's mainly that figuring out whether a decision was good or bad is pretty hard. Most decisions aren't opaque. I mean, aren't transparent, rather, in, in the sense of like, we know it's, it's good to go through green lights and bad to go through red lights. So you know, if you go through a green light and you get in an accident, nobody thinks that's a bad decision, but that's because that decision is pretty transparent. It's one that we've kind of all agreed on and we know the rules of the road and that kind of thing. But most decisions aren't like that. When you think about what, you know, did, it, did I, did, maybe you took a new job or maybe you were in a new relationship or maybe you had a breakup or maybe you were trying to choose a new sales strategy or whatever it might be, figuring out whether those decisions are really hard. So when we try to answer those questions, we usually substitute in the actual result of the decision in order to be able to answer it. This is called resulting. The problem, of course, is that when we think about going through traffic lights, we know that just because you make a good decision doesn't always mean you get a good outcome. Because I can go through a green light and I can get in an accident. But also just because you make a bad decision doesn't necessarily mean you get a bad outcome. So I can go through a red light and I can get through just fine. So we want to actually be thinking about what are the different ways in which decision quality and outcome quality can actually be related to each other. And we know you could have a good decision, a good outcome, a good decision, a bad outcome, a bad decision, a good outcome, and a bad decision, a bad outcome. And you need to be thinking about all four of those things in order to actually get really efficient and basically learning from your experience, learning from your experience going through intersections or your experience in, you know, choosing jobs or your experience dating or your experience figuring out where you want to live or, you know, whatever it is, how are we going to learn from those experiences if we're not thinking about this uh, in, in a way that makes a lot of sense? 
and one of the factors that plays into this that we all we're all well aware of, but we never maybe ascribe to our good outcomes looking back would be luck, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's basically, there's, there's two things that influence the outcome. So the main one would be luck. So we can think about, you know, I know people say you make your own luck, but it's not true. <laughs> Tell everybody it's not true. <laughs> um, what you do is when you make a decision and you choose a particular outcome, that uh, you choose a particular option rather like I'm choosing between two houses and I, I, I choose to buy house a, there are a certain number of possibilities. Like there's different ways that that could turn out. Right. So uh, it could turn out to have unnoticed foundation problems, or it could be the house of your dreams that you like love and live in for the rest of your life. You could get transferred in five years and have to move when right at the point that the market is at its low, like I'm just spitballing here. Right. But there's a whole bunch of different ways that this decision to purchase this house could turn out. And each of those things has some likelihood of occurring, but none of them is guaranteed. So where luck intervenes is that when I choose the option, that's the moment that all of those different possibilities get like locked in, you know, in the same way that once the coin leaves my thumb, right, and I flip it in the air, we know it will land heads or tails. But which one it lands, right, do you have to sell it in a down market or do you live in it for the next 30 years, that is very largely determined by luck. So that's what we can think of. Whichever of those outcomes could possibly occur, the one that we actually observe is really kind of due to luck. So when you say like you make your own luck, what you're really saying is I'm choosing better options. In other words, I'm choosing options that are more likely to work out for me than not work out for me. And when, but when I choose those, all that does is I'm increasing the chances of what we would sort of call good luck, right? Like something good happening to me because it goes my way and I'm sort of decreasing my chances of bad luck. So you're not making luck. You're, you're just making the decision that changes kind of what the distribution of the way that things could turn out is. And then looking back, you call that resulting, which you kind of identified both as outcome bias in the, in the good sense, if something works out, it's outcome bias, you know, but in the bad sense, it's hindsight bias where, oh, we should have known that was going to happen. Yeah. So, so resulting in hindsight bias actually kind of interrelate to each other. So resulting is saying, if I know the outcome of a decision, it tells me what I need to know about whether the decision was good or bad. So if it turns out badly, it must've been a bad decision. If it turns out well, it must've been a good decision. And then hindsight bias kind of like adds to the ruckus. It layers on, which is that not only do you kind of think like that was the only thing that could have happened. So you sort of forget about all the other ways things could have gone. So, you know, you call heads and it lands tails and you're like, ah, I should have known it was gonna be heads. Okay, I don't know why it's a two-sided coin. But that's kind of what you feel like with hindsight bias. So that's kind of like that should have known. And then sometimes it gets even worse and you have kind of this, what I call memory creep, which is that you believe you did know beforehand. So, so that would be like, I knew it was going to land heads. Well, no, you didn't because then you would have called heads. So like, I think that one of the, one of the greatest sort of narratives that, that I've sort of seen in the past few years that really kind of think ties these two things together has to do with kind of the way that people think about Hillary Clinton's campaign strategy in 2006. So, you know, lover or hater, every single person thinks that she really messed up Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, right? Like, ugh, did she ever fumble the ball on the Rust Belt? Now, of course, we know what happened in the Rust Belt, right? She lost those three states by 
I think it was a combined total of around 80,000-ish votes across three straight. So it's a pretty narrow margin, you know. Because she lost, two things have happened. One is that everybody says, obviously, that was a terrible strategy. So let's kind of start there and say, well, was it really a terrible strategy? Because, like, we're in the middle of an election season right now. Is there not every single political pundit is, you know, commenting on it, data scientists who already, you know, they're all commenting on it. Uh, political observers and strategists, they're all commenting on it. And everybody has a lot to say about Biden's strategy and Trump's strategy. So that was true in 2016 as well. People had lots and lots and lots to say about Clinton's strategy and Trump's strategy. So can we agree, like, just to, I mean, because if you don't agree, let me know, that if it were as bad a decision as everybody thinks it was, to not be campaigning in those three states, that people would have been talking about it. They would have been writing about it. They would have been saying things about it. But nobody did. But nobody did. When you look actually at Google, the first article that comes up that's like hyper, you know, really talking about this kind of fumble of hers um, is November 9th. And the election was on November 8th. So this is a really good example of, of resulting which is we know she lost, so therefore her decision-making must have been poor, is if she should have had like a, a crystal ball that told her there's a polling error in those three states, but no others, by the way. Like nationally, you know, Florida, New Hampshire, all these places, they, they seem to be polling right on. And the thing, of course, about a polling error is you can't know about it until after the fact. So the first thing is they're assuming the decision-making must have been bad, and then hindsight bias gets thrown in in two ways. One is that they think she should have known, that somehow she should have been able to tell that there was a polling error. And that's what a lot of people are talking about. Well, obviously there was a polling error. Well, no, because you can't know about that till after the fact. It's not knowable beforehand. But the other one that I think is really interesting is this, this memory creep where you feel like you as an individual did know. And one of my favorite examples of this in relation to this particular problem was I was kind of pitching wanting to write about this for uh, an, a newspaper, for the opinion section of a newspaper. And the editor that I was speaking to said, well, I'm, I can't publish this article because everybody did know at the time and everybody was talking about it. And I don't know, I was talking about it with all my friends and they were all writing about it. Hmm. And, I, and I'm thinking you're an editor at a newspaper, like I would think that you could put it in your newspaper. So show me the article where, where did you keep the secret? Did everybody on earth keep this a secret? It, it appears so because it's not, people weren't writing about it. And, and that's not to say that people didn't sort of see warning signs in terms of, you know, Bernie's performance versus Clinton's performance in the Rust Belt. But, you know, she was pulling pretty far ahead in those states and Florida and New Hampshire were toss-ups. So, you know, she can't, you can't win without Florida. So maybe you're supposed to be down there in Florida. But I thought it was so interesting that this person was so sure and they're, new, they're, they're in a newspaper that, you know, this was being written about and people were talking about it. And they, this is where our memories get distorted. So then I put, put this to you. If we're doing this stuff, if we're doing resulting in hindsight bias, how are we ever supposed to learn from our experience? Because like the minimum requirement to learn from our experience is uh, to remember why we made the decision in the first place. We have to sort of reconstruct what our state of knowledge was at the time. We have to reconstruct why did we make the decision that we did. And if we can't do that and we start having all this weird memory distortion and resulting going on, you know, what's going to end up happening is that you're going to do the decision-making equivalent of like driving home drunk, getting there safely and saying, wow, I must be a really good drunk driver. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a thing that every time we remember something, it, it's slightly distorted from the previous time and really from reality. 
and our brains are always rewriting our stories to make ourselves the hero in some situations. So of course I knew this was going to be the outcome because I saw it coming. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the thing is that sometimes you did good on you, but (laughs) most of the time that you did, you know, most of the time you didn't. And it's a much more productive thing instead of just sort of taking credit and saying, I saw this coming, which isn't, again, you're not lying when you say that you saw it coming. I think that people really do believe that they saw it coming, but what's going to happen is that you're, it doesn't improve your decision-making going forward because it's more interesting to say, wow, this thing happened. I didn't see it coming. So let me figure out two things. Was it possible to see coming? And by the way, most of the time the answer is going to be no, because like, you don't know there's a polling error until after the vote's taken. But there's also stuff like that with, you know, houses, for example, like you can do a whole bunch of diligence on a house and you buy it. And then two months later, the house next door for you goes for sale. And like some people who are, you know, drug dealers move in and there's all sorts of coming, you know, there's, you can't possibly have known that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that's sort of something that happened after the fact. And that's like, there's a lot of decisions that are like that, that where you just couldn't possibly have known. But if the answer is yes, it was something that you could have seen coming, then you can start to explore, was it something reasonable for me to see coming? Did I miss something in the decision process? And if the answer to that is yes, just fix it. Sure. Think about it the next time. But also sometimes the answer is no, it wasn't really reasonable for me to sort of be considering. So like the pandemic is a good example of that. There were certainly people who foresaw that a pandemic might come. I mean, Bill Gates was among them. David Epstein, who wrote Range, he wrote about it. But like me as an individual, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have a pandemic on my bingo card. And I don't think that for my regular decision-making that that would have been a reasonable thing for me to sort of spend my time obsessing about, you know? But now that I know, oh, okay, now I sort of have it and I kind of understand what it is. Now maybe, you know, as I'm sort of thinking about other things in the future, I could say, well, what if there's a really big disruption? You know, like pandemic or otherwise, like restricts travel or whatever. I can sort of think about those things. But I don't think it was reasonable for anybody to be thinking about it before. I mean, not the average person, the, the federal government to be thinking about it beforehand. That that would be reasonable. They have the resources to do things about but. For me as an individual, I don't think I, 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 I don't feel bad that I didn't see it coming. And even for private enterprises, yeah, uh, like a hospital or, or something, they not, shouldn't necessarily be expected to stock massive numbers of ventilators for something that may or may not. No, and, and particularly in this case, because that's the government's job. So they, they would have every reason to believe that the government would be doing that. So because that's, that's what their state of information is. So yeah, there's no reason for them to think there's something wrong with the national stockpile and it's you know, lapsed or it hasn't been kept up with or whatever, that they, they, there wouldn't be a reason for them to assume that that was so. Do you know, I personally don't know the answer. I'm just curious, is there a national stockpile of ventilators that was short? I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so there, there was a national stockpile of PPE and ventilators. Yeah. The ventilate, a lot of the ventilators happen to be in disrepair. Uh, and a lot of the PPE apparently people should fact check me on this was uh, sort of expired or, or it wasn't maintained. It was so the, the amount of stuff that they thought that they had was, it was actually much less than that. But now you can see how this is something where even though it's not really reasonable for you to say like, I, I you know, maybe there's something, you know, the stockpile is in disrepair. Now that you know it, a hospital can do some very simple things to sort of be in front of that, which is they can just check in and say, 
once every six months, they can see whoever their contact is and say, hey, how's that stockpile doing, right? Um, so like I had an example of this actually with, with this book, which is it was supposed to be released on September 15th mm-hmm. and having nothing to do with anything I had control over, um, the publisher misprinted the first printing run. And, you know, it happens. I mean, there's a lot of disruptions, so many disruptions in printing because of COVID right now. So, you know, stuff like this is kind of happening. So, so my print date had to get moved to October 13th, my release date rather. So somebody said to me, oh, wow, like, were you prepared for this? And I said, of course not. Like, there was no reason for me to think, oh, I'm, I should really start to really worry about whether my book is going to get misprinted. Why would I have that sort of in the reasonable set of outcomes that could have occurred? But having known it now that I knew it, and I was thinking about October 13th, I could say, well, what are some pretty inexpensive things that I could do to actually protect myself against this bad thing happening again in the future? And I just made sure that the publisher was having the first book that came off the press couriered to them so that they could look at it before it was too late, right? But there's no reason that I should have known that beforehand. So a lot of times what happens is we spend a lot of time beating ourselves up that we should have known or thinking that we did know when our actions didn't really say that we knew. Instead of saying, now that I know that this is a possibility, are there things that I can do that are pretty inexpensive that could reduce the chances of this happening or at least make it so that when it does happen, it's not as bad, right? So that, you know, you, you can think about that with a pandemic as well. Like I imagine people will have better internet, you know, if they, if they have access to internet, maybe they'll make sure that it's faster or something like that, you know, just in case something happens. So finding ways that we can, because there's a million unknowns out there, right? Um, so yeah, and, and like there's fun. there's so so many simple examples of this kind of thinking of where you're really trying to think about like what are the ways that things might go wrong here, and then let me think about ways that I can sort of mitigate that in advance. It's it's sort of the anti-positive thinking, right? So yeah, so negative thinking, you call it exactly. So with the power of positive thinking, it's it's this idea of like I have this destination that I want to get to. By the way, I don't think anybody should have a negative destination. Everybody should think they're going to succeed. Right. Like, okay, I really want to get to this place that I want to go to. And I would, I believe that I can be successful at it. So the question is actually just how do you imagine that success occurring? And with the power of positive thinking, what they're suggesting is that you should sort of imagine clear roads along the way, like, oh, I'm going to be successful at every point. And the power of negative thinking says, imagine the stuff that might go wrong along the way so that you can do something about it in advance. So that's what I'm really saying. Like now that I know, oh, there could be a printing error. I didn't realize that. What can I do to actually make it so that that doesn't happen, which will actually create a more successful result for me? Now we do this all the time. Like if you want to have an outdoor wedding, you can imagine, well, what are the ways in which that might go wrong? Well, it might rain. So maybe you have the wherewithal to uh, have a tent set up on the site just in case it's raining so you go to the tent. Or maybe you don't have the wherewithal to have that extra insurance. So you choose to have your wedding inside instead, right? Which is, which is another thing that you can do, but either way, your day won't be ruined, right? Uh, another really simple example of this is like, if you're going to the airport and you really, really, really can't miss your flight and you're thinking about what are the ways that that might go wrong. Well, obviously like there could be an accident on the way or uh, bad traffic or whatever. And your response to that would be to say, I'm willing to pay with my time to make sure that this thing that I can foresee happening, that traffic conditions aren't what they normally are, that I can sort of avoid that of making me miss my flight. 
and you leave like, you know, 45 minutes in advance of what you normally would. Are you going to have to spend some extra time in the airport most of the time? Sure. In the same sense that uh, when you have the tent set up, you may not use it if it's a sunny day. When uh, you decide to move it indoors to the wedding to, move, you know, to indoors to avoid the bad weather, sometimes you'll have an indoor wedding on a sunny day. But you're, that's the price you're paying in order to make sure that your print run doesn't ruin your publication date, right? Sure. Um, and that's all fine. And that, that generally gets you the more successful results into, in, and into a better place. But you notice that that's really the opposite of hindsight bias, right? Hindsight bias is this weird, like, look back of, like, I should have known or I did know. And this is saying that's not productive. What is productive is to imagine what you might find out later that you wish you had thought about in advance. Sure. To look right? back from a future self. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And those are basically just examples of hedging your bets, which you say yeah, are something that, you know, has a low cost, but a potential to really protect you and you hope you never use them, but they're there if you do. Right? Yeah. And I think that the, the hope you never use them is actually a really important point. You know, when you had to, there's a cost, like if you leave early for the airport, it's costing your time. If you set up a tent at your wedding, it's costing you whatever the cost of the tent is. If you buy insurance for your house, the, the insurance has a cost, right? Uh, but, you know, when your house burns down, you're pretty happy you had that insurance. Mm -hmm. The issue is that this is, it, there's this very weird sort of looping with hindsight bias, which is even though when I get insurance for my house, I hope, I'm certainly hoping I never use it. I don't want my house to burn down. If you never use it, you regret having it in the first place, which is interesting because the whole point is that there's some chance that my house burns down because of luck. I can't know, is it going to burn down or not? I just know there's some probability that it's going to burn down. And the effects to me of that happening would be so great that I'm willing to pay this cost, which is to buy insurance. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, when it's sunny on your wedding day and you chose to have your wedding indoors, you're like, why did I do this? I'm so dumb. I should have known it was going to be a sunny day. And you're really sad that you actually hedged, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things we need to think about when we're, when we're doing these kinds um, you know, this time traveling to the future and imagining things might go wrong and figuring out like what's affordable where I could make it so that if this bad things happens and my house burns down, then I'm not going to be financially ruined. That when that bad thing never happens, you don't look back on it with hindsight bias and say, oh, I should have known that bad thing was never going to happen mm -hmm. because we can't know those things. We can't, but you recommend in the book that we try to create a decision multiverse and from that a decision tree where we identify as many branches as we can from every possible choice. And then from each of those outcomes, I'm sorry, from each of those various choices, we further branch out to multiple outcomes. And then we, from there, we add what we think is a, a probability number of these happening, right? Yeah. Talk a little about so that. So hopefully what people have realized by now is that, the, you know, the way that I think about these things is you choose something like a route to work and or a sales strategy or who you're going to marry or what house you're going to buy or what you're going to have for dinner. And there's a variety of ways that those things could, right? Sometimes it's going to be great. Sometimes it's not. There's going to be different flavors of great. There's going to be different flavors of not so good. And the more that you can identify the way that the future might turn out, given an option you're choosing, you know, whether, whether it's the chicken or the fish or marrying Morgan or Taylor, right? the more that you can kind of think about that, the better your vision of the future is going to be, particularly if you don't just think about here are the ways that I think that could end up occurring. Like this is the outcome that I might see, 
but also like how likely is that thing to happen, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, like as an example, I mean, we see this in the, the, the prediction markets. I think that when uh, Clinton and Trump kind of at the end of that, like right before election day, I think Clinton was like 30 or 35%, I mean, to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, you know, seven, 65, 70% to win, 30, 35% to lose. So what that means is that somewhere 30th percent of the time, she's going to lose. And that's all, that's all that you, it doesn't matter that she happened to have lost. It doesn't change the fact that she was 30% to do it. Because 30% is a lot. If I gave you a gun with a hundred chambers in it and I put 30 bullets in it, I assume you're not going to play Russian roulette. That would be way too high a chance for you. So, so, you know, what you want to say when, when you're thinking about like two decisions, like two options that you might be choosing, you know, maybe one of them has a 10% chance of working out poorly and another one has a 40% chance of working out poorly. All things being equal, you would choose, want to choose the one that is going to work out poorly 10% of the time. But 10% of the time, it still, will still work out badly. That doesn't mean it was a bad choice. So what that means is that when you're making a decision, what you're really trying to do is get a really good look at the future and not just one future. You want to be trying to figure out what are all the reasonable futures for how this could actually turn out. Because if you don't think about what the reasonable ways it could turn out and how likely those things are to turn out, I'm not exactly sure how you'd make a decision because inherent in really all a decision is, is a prediction of the future. If I order the chicken instead of the fish, I'm predicting that I'll like it better. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a prediction of the future. I'm, I'm trying to get something close to a crystal ball. And when we think about like the look back in terms of uh, you know, resulting, for example, now what we can see is happening is that even though when we're thinking about the future, we know there's like a whole bunch of different ways that things could turn out. Once we know the outcome, we feel like that was the only way to turn out. Like we sort of chop off all the different branches of the tree. So you always need to be keeping in mind, okay, yes, Clinton lost, but she also could have won. It doesn't mean that that was the only way it could turn out. It just means it was the way it turned out this time. And that 30% chance or whatever the number is, isn't the number of voters. It's, it's a probability. I think probability is a difficult question or a difficult topic for a lot of people to kind of wrap their heads Yeah. Around. So like elections are actually really interesting. So I think she was ahead in the, in the polling in terms of the national vote by about two to 3%. So listeners might be wondering, well, then why would she be 70, 30 to win? So what you can imagine is, let's say if you're six months in advance of an election and uh, a candidate is polling 2% ahead. Well, you can imagine there's now there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen in between. So it's actually very, very difficult to have a lot of confidence around uh, in six months that 2% is going to realize and the candidate's going to win by 2%. So you would be more likely to be thinking about that race more as 50-50, right? It's very, very close. But when you get 2% like on election day, we know that generally electoral college aside, generally if a candidate wins by 2%, they're usually going to win the election. It depends a little bit on the distribution of the votes, but let's pretend that that's true. Now you can think that the closer that you get to the moment that somebody votes, you're getting closer to the vote itself. It's going to be more predictive. So so the longer that you're thinking about things in the future, the, the wider your predictions are going to be and the less confidence you'll have around those predictions in general. And the closer you get, the more signal there's going to be. So if I know on election day that a candidate is polling 2% ahead, you know, Clinton was 70, 30, because 
you know, the, the, the electoral college is in the way there, right? So you don't exactly know how those votes are going to break. If it had been a national election, and she was pulling two to three points ahead, in the sense of national election, meaning there's no, it's just popular vote, she would have been more than 70-30. Sure. Right, but there's like an intervening thing happening. So that's the difference, is just, that's how you can be 2% ahead in the polls, but the likelihood that you win is actually much, much, much higher than that. And that's something that you had, you spent a few pages on, likelihood and how people in, in their natural language will say, oh, something's very likely or very unlikely or probably going to happen. And we all have wildly different ideas about what that actually means. And it really muddles communication between business teams and, and really any, any communication. Yeah, so, so we've talked a lot about luck and we've only hinted a little bit about the other big problem with decision-making, which is that there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know when you make a decision. And one of the, you know, essentially it's like, I'm making a decision and there's some things I can't know, right? It's because I, I don't have a time machine. So for example, I can't know that Trump was going to win that election in 2016. I can sort of predict that, you know, predict different things. But then there's just all sorts of other stuff that you don't know. Like, I, I don't know what Vladimir Putin is thinking today or what he's going to do or what his plans are. There's all sorts of things about the way that other, what other people are thinking that I don't have access to. If I'm trading in the market, um, let's say, and I'm trying to, I'm making an investing in a stock, I don't have perfect information about that stock. And I don't have perfect information about every other stock in the market. And I don't have perfect information about like what the Fed's intentions are, right? So every time that you make a decision, there's incomplete information. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that you don't know. So what we're always trying to do when we make decisions is to think about how can I improve the knowledge that I have that's actually going into this decision? Because we can think about like, you know, you can know all of this stuff about probability and you can say, yes, I know that there's luck involved and I know there's all sorts of different ways that things can turn out. But when you're trying to figure out what are the ways that things can turn out and how likely they are, that's going to be informed by the things that you know, like what, what is the knowledge that's forming that decision? And we know that there's, you know, the things any human being knows, like fits on the head of a pin and that, you know, the things that they don't know are like the size of the universe. Well, one of the best ways to sort of start to get into that universe of stuff you don't know is to actually talk to other people. Because, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned from politics today, two people can look at the exact same set of facts and come to very widely, wildly different conclusions about them. Sure. And it's helpful to me as a decision maker to understand how you're thinking about those facts, right? I mean, it's just, that's a good thing for me to do. So we can both look at data about gun control, or we can both look at data about climate change, or we could both look at data, you know, about, you know, police misconduct or killings or whatever. And we can come to very, very different conclusions about that data. Mm -hmm. So it's really helpful to me as a decision maker to talk to you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because the more that I can sort of get other people's perspectives, and of course, I mean, people who are arguing in good faith, because obviously there are people who have different perspectives, but they're not actually... They're not actually trying to be honest about what they believe. They're just trying to make a point or manipulate you or propagandize or whatever. So I'm talking about people who this is really what they think genuinely. And they've come to this through some sort of process. It's good for me to collide with that because the, the fact is that I, I can't see every perspective at once. And there may be ways that you're thinking about the data that would actually really help me because I may be thinking about it in, in an inaccurate way. You may have data that I don't have. That'd be really good for me to find out. You may, you may know other facts than me. 
um, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, if I can get into your head, I'm going to be better off. So the question is, how can I actually truly get into your head? And that's what you were talking about. So if we know that one of the really important things about making a decision is to think, how likely are things to, to happen? That'd be good. Is this coin 50-50? Is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? I'd like to know because I want to know whether I should call heads. That'd be good for me to know. And obviously, the more imbalanced the coin is toward heads, the more I'd like to be calling heads. <laughs> so if that's the case, then I need to actually uncover what it is that you think. And there's all sorts of ways in which we don't uncover what other people think. So one way is that we tend to talk to people who already agree with us. Mm -hmm. So we're not actually talking to people who have a different point of view. So that doesn't help us get another perspective. But the other thing is that when I talk to people who agree with me or don't, there's all sorts of ways in which I can hide the disagreement. So one of them is by, instead of saying, like when I was talking about Clinton, she, I think she was like 30, 35% to lose. Instead of saying that, you, I say something like, I think she was unlikely to lose. Because now the question is, well, what does unlikely mean? Because we don't necessarily have an agreement about it. So there's a really wonderful survey that was done by Andrew and Michael Mobison. And they just took all these words that we use all the time that have this kind of you know, we think that we're saying something very precise, right? When I say, I think it was really unlikely. I think that you think unlikely is the same thing as me. And so we're having a conversation and we agree with each other and we really agree. So he, they, they came up with like this list of all these words, like real possibility and unlikely and likely and maybe and slam dunk and uh, almost never and stuff like that, that imply some sort of probability. And they just had people write down, when you say that, how often do you think it, this thing will happen? So you can think about it as like, if I said it's a real possibility that this coin will flip heads, how often out of 100 coin flips would you think that it would land heads if I say it's a real possibility it will happen? Whereas if I say it's unlikely it will land heads, what am I saying? How many times out of 100 do I think that it would land heads? Then? And then so we can forecast a probability. And what they found is that people don't agree on any of these terms. Not, here's the interesting thing. So the widest spread is real possibility, which goes, some people think it means 20% and some think it, people think it means 80%. And then you get a pretty even spread all the way in between. So people are all over the map on a word like real possibility, which if you think in your own language, like you'll notice how many times you say that. But what's really interesting is people don't agree on what always and never means. Hmm. Some people think always means 100%, but some people mean think oh, yeah, people don't when they say always they don't always mean always mm -hmm. and they think it means more like 95 percent. and mm -hmm. the same thing with never some people think it means zero percent and some people think it means five percent so how are we supposed to actually have a conversation then because if i say to you uh what do you think i think it's really i think it's really unlikely that uh uh clinton was you know was going to lose that election or is going to lose that election if we're making a prediction and you say yeah i think it's unlikely too Right. But what if your my unlikely is 10% of the time she'll lose and your unlikely is 40% of the time you think she's going to lose? We actually could have had a really good conversation to understand why we think really different things, but we never found it out. And that's a big missed opportunity because the biggest problem that we have as decision makers is that we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And if I lose an opportunity to find out some information from you and have a really good conversation with you, that's really bad for me. I'm going to make a worse decision because of it. Yeah. That boils down to uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's inside view and outside view. Right. We, we're all stuck on the inside view and everyone can see what we're doing wrong. They can see our behaviors 
and in their own heads are like, I've got 10 more pieces of information that could help you solve this so much better. And you're not even willing to, to look elsewhere for information. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and that, and that inside outside view problem is really this issue of like, how are you increasing the quality of your beliefs? Like the knowledge that you have that's going into your decision. It's kind of like that junk in junk out, right? Mm -hmm. I can build you an amazing decision process where I can show you all the right steps, you know, imagine the possibilities, think about, uh, how much each of those possibilities advances you towards your goal or away. In other words, like how much do you do, which outcomes do you prefer? Which do you not prefer? How likely are those things to occur? Now figure out, you know, the stuff that you, pref- you know, the things that advance you to your goal, that's the upside. The things that cause you to retreat away, that's the downside. You can now look at is the upside more likely than the downside. You can compare it to other options. I can teach you all of that stuff. But if there's something wrong with the beliefs and the knowledge that you're inputting into that, then all of that is going to be junk. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have, you're not going to be considering the right options. You're not going to be understanding how those things might unfold. Your, your estimates of how likely they are to occur are going to be junk. So we have to always be really vigilant about how can we improve the accuracy of our beliefs. And that's that inside outside view problem, because the only way to improve the accuracy of our beliefs is go to explore the universe of stuff. You don't know, see the world from outside of your own perspective, find out the stuff that you don't already know. Cause if, if you're not doing that, you're not improving your decision-making. Right on. Uh, going back a little bit further towards the middle of this earlier in this conversation, uh, you said all things being equal on our decision tree, we want to look at the different probabilities. One thing you talk about in the book, though, is all things aren't equal because of the magnitude of the outcome. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I, I guess like I, I talk a little bit in this book about why you shouldn't use pros and cons lists. With the pros and cons list, what you're, what you're doing is you're making this kind of list of like, here are the good things about this thing I'm thinking about. And here are the bad things. Like I'm trying to decide whether to go to college. Here are all the pros to choosing this college. And here are the cons. The problem is that what you're missing, though, is two dimensions. Number one, we've already talked a lot about, which is how, well, how likely are those things that are good about going to that college to occur? Like, how often are they going to happen? How often are the bad things going to happen? But the other thing that we, and and that's obviously not contained in a pros and cons list. There isn't any probability listed in a pros and cons list, right? But the other thing that's missing from a pros and cons list is how good is the pro or how bad is the con? Mm -hmm. So you know, one of the things we always want to think about is that when we're thinking about options and there are kind of good and bad things that can come from it, you want to have with clearly, you know, identified goals, say some, some of those outcomes are going to advance me farther toward my goal than others. Some of the downside outcomes, the ones I don't like are going to cause me to retreat farther away from my goals than others. And if we don't understand that, it's very hard to make a decision. We need those two pieces of information the probability, and then also what we would call the payoff. How much is it getting you to go towards your goal? How much is it getting you to go away? Because otherwise, if you think about a pros and cons list, it's like, well, first of all, all right, there's like, I might get a hangnail, but then there's also, I might win a million dollars. Like, are we supposed to have those as equal things on either side of the list? I'm not really sure. And even if you do include that, you would need to know, well, you know, 99.99% 99.99% of the time I get a hangnail and it gets infected and it's, you know, whatever. And my chances of winning a million dollars are 0.00000000001% of the time. So maybe the hangnail in this case would actually be worse because it's so much more likely to occur, 
right? So, but if we don't, if we're not thinking about it that way, it's very hard to think about how you would balance out the con and the pro side of the list. Mm -hmm. And then the other problem, going back to the inside view, is that a pros and cons list is actually an inside view tool, meaning uh, it's the pros. I, I'm thinking about the pros and I'm thinking about the cons and I kind of know whether I want to go to that college or not. And so I'm going to, with that, you know, kind of unfettered without anybody looking over my shoulder and getting me to, you know, offer a different perspective to mine. I'm just going to build something that like, if I want to go, it's going to have lots of pros. And if I don't want to go, it's going to have lots of cons mm. and you know, you're not doing it on purpose. It's just, it's just the way our minds work and it's going to happen. So it's, it, it's really actually like an amplifier of the inside view and what we really want to do in all of our decision-making is be dampening the, we want to be getting more to the outside of our own perspective. Yeah. Otherwise we end up justifying our decisions. Like, look at this huge list of pros. It was enough. Right. And that's what a pros and cons, that's actually a really good way to put it, which I hadn't thought of it. Like a pros and cons list is actually a way to justify your decision as opposed to make a decision in that sure. sense. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, thank you. In the book, you talk about every guest being an educated guest, going back to the, Clinton Trump thing, for example, you said as you're further away from the election day, you have a really wide spread. But as you get closer, you have more information, you have more of an educated guess. Then you give a list, I'm not sure, I think it was about 10 questions asking us to give a lower bound and an upper bound for these, the weight of a rhinoceros. And I don't know, I can't remember them all, but yeah, I, yeah. Them. I think it was like, how many Academy Award nominations does Meryl Streep have? Like, yeah, so. I was 50% within my bounds on those questions, which means my- That's about, bounds. by the way, that's about how, I think you saw, I said most, that's where most people run. Yeah, I think so. Too. So, and, and in that exercise, I'm asking you to get to 95%, 90%. So, and you notice that so you were pretty far off, which everybody is. So this, first of all, this, this reveals, so, so let me just explain the exercise really clearly. Yeah. What you're doing is you're saying, I want you to estimate, say the weight of a rhino an average, you know, the average weight of a rhino. So you would give a, what's called a point estimate, which is an exact guess of what that is. And then you would uh, say, I would like to figure out what the lowest amount of rhino weighs and uh, the highest amount of uh, rhino weighs such that like nine times out of 10, I'm going to have the actual average rate of one, an adult rhino within like, that range. in this range. The, the reason why I say nine times out of 10, it's a very specific goal. Because you don't want to be so wide in those that you'd be guaranteed because then it's not really informative, right? So I could say zero to infinity pounds. Well, okay, I'm always going to capture the fact that the rhino's weight lives in there, but it's not really a, a, a guess made out of uh, good intentions, right? I'm not really doing that in good faith. And we want to be exploring our knowledge in good faith, but you also don't want to be too narrow, because that's implying that you know more about this than you do. So basically the range, the upper and the lower bound and how far apart those are communicates to other people. I know either a lot about this or I know a little bit about it. You know, as an example, if I were to ask you about the weight of a house cat, your range would probably be pretty narrow because most people know that house cats weigh like 10-ish pounds, right? And then there's some very big ones and there's some very small ones, but we're all pretty good on... We, we have a lot of experience with house cats, right? But if I were to ask you the weight of a rhino, that's harder. We don't have a lot of experience with rhinos. Most of our, us aren't taking our pet rhinos to the vet and getting our pet rhinos weighed. So most people have much more knowledge about a house cat's weight than a rhino's weight. And so one would assume that you'd have a narrower range around the house cat than the rhino. 
now why are you trying to get to nine times out of 10? Because what you're trying to do is accurately convey how certain you are about the guess. Again, you don't want it too wide or too narrow. You want it somewhere Goldilocks. Now, what's interesting is that most people do not accurately convey what they know about it, mainly because we're, we're too confident in what we know about it. And they do it in the direction of getting to actually about 50% of them right, as opposed to 90% of them right. So that's what that, that list is meant, meant to do. What this, what this is really trying to get you to do is to say, try to figure out like when, when we say we just be guessing, we don't really mean it because for almost anything you'd be making a guess about, you know, something. So like, if you're trying to guess Meryl Streep's, you know, how many Academy Award nominations she's had, you could say, I'd just be guessing, but I think that's not true because you know, well, she's a pretty famous actress. Mm-hmm. And she's been in a lot of stuff. And I think, you know, she's been nominated more than most people has, you know, and then you can start thinking, well, like how many people, you know, how, what's the average number that people have been nominated for? She's obviously way out at the tails and what would be a lot and how many, and you think like how long has her career been? How many movies has she been in? Right. And you can start to, you can sort of start to, well, somebody actually just did this with me. They said to me, they, they asked me to do this with, how many, I think it was like how many top 10, was it top 10 songs that Drake has had in terms of downloads on like Spotify or something like that. So I, I'm more of a Jack White person than a Drake person, but I actually got, I actually did a pretty good job of it because instead of saying, well, I don't know, I'd just be guessing. I said, well, let me try to think, how can I get the educated in my guess? So let me think about what I do know. And this is actually really useful, right? So I said, well, I know that he's been around for quite a long time and he's been pretty popular. So let me, so I said, well, how many songs do I think he's probably put out total, right? So I sort of thought about that and I was like, "Eh, he's pretty prolific and he's been around a long time. So I'm guessing it's like probably two to 300, right? So that, that was sort of where I started, like what's his output? And then I was like, he, he's, and he's also very popular. Right. So I think I said my lower bound was like 10 and my upper bound was 50 because I was like, every song isn't going to be like a top 20 on downloads or whatever, but people really like him. And the fact that it's Drake, but he's probably going to have a pretty high hit rate. So I said between 10 and 50. Now notice that still shows a lot of uncertainty on my part. It's pretty wide range. I think they said the number was 42. So like I, I did happen to get it, but you notice that I'm going through and this is something that I don't know a ton about, but I do know things about, how popular he is just because I live on the earth. I kind of know he's been around for a long time. I've seen him on Saturday Night Live. So he must be, you know, the, there's things that I can start to explore. And you notice that, that what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of starting to think about my knowledge. Okay. So that's what I'm doing. I'm exploring what's the educated in my guests. Now, if you let me Google it, I now get to knowledge that lives in that universe of stuff that I don't know. And that's where if we're really demanding this of ourselves, and we're saying like, okay, let me think about what's, what's my estimate, what's the top amount it could be, what's the bottom amount it could be. And obviously, naturally, we want to narrow those down. We want to get better at those, at those educated guesses. That gets me to go ask you. And I can say, yo, do you, how much do you know about Drake? I got a few albums. And maybe you're like the biggest Drake fan ever. Yeah, not the biggest, but I like them. Yeah, I got. <laughs> oh, my God, you have a Drake album. See? Oh, yeah. Right. So yeah. now you'll have, so, so now you'll be able to help me. Right. Because I'll be like, because now I can say to you, well, you know more about Drake than I do. Oh my gosh. See, 
how there you go. They got the white stripes too. I said I was more of a Jack White fan. I like that. <laughs> so um, you know, so 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 now you can help me because you you know Drake better than I. Obviously, you have the white stripes, but if you maybe you don't know so much about Jack White, and because you've never heard of him, you assume well he couldn't have had that many songs. And I can be like, no, actually, let me tell you something about Jack White. Not only is he really pr prolific, but particularly when you talk about his early albums, there were a lot of tracks on those albums, right? And I can yeah. start listing off the albums and we can figure out how, what's the number of tracks on each album, what were, were his side hustles, like Dead Weather, right? So I, may, I can fill in your knowledge gaps. And notice now we're doing that really important thing, which is I'm getting to access your knowledge, you're getting to access my knowledge, and we can start to refine these educated guesses. We're just getting more educated into the guess. And we're getting outside of our own heads mm -hmm. and our own beliefs in a way that's really going to improve our decision-making. That's cool. Well, one thing you talked about is getting outside of our own heads and beliefs is more important when there's no potential to go back or no potential to make that decision again. But other decisions, we, we agonize over, should we go to Paris or Rome for a vacation? And they're both two really good options. So, yeah, so people listening might have the idea that I'm saying that you have to sit there with like some sort of calculator to make any decision that you're going to make. And I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, first of all, you need to kind of understand what the process would look like so that you're even if you're making a very quick decision, you're at least doing some sort of skinny, you know, sort of stripped down version of this process because it still doesn't matter. But no, this is for decisions that are really uh, impactful. Uh, and where it's really kind of like, it's kind of a one-way street. It's like, it's really hard to get out of the decision if you happen to not quite get it right. There, I have a whole chapter devoted to this, which is don't worry. Mostly you can go really fast. And there are ways that you can think about how you can go fast. Mm -hmm. The first is, um, has to do with impact, which is really what's the impact on my happiness or my reaching my goals or whatever, if this doesn't go my way. If you, you know, I don't know about you, but I know people who really do spend like 15 minutes on a menu and they're literally quizzing every single person at the table and they're calling the wait staff over and being like, what do you think? And they've got Yelp out and like, because they're trying to choose between the chicken and the fish over here. Right. And we all have friends like that. I suspect some of you are that friend. Right. If we think about that, though, in terms of impact, how bad is it if you get it wrong? Sure. So let's just say, Jeffrey, that like. Okay, you order the chicken and it sucks. And I catch you in a year and I say to you, hey, you know, how happy are you today? And you're like, pretty happy, or maybe you're not even that happy, whatever. But then I said, you remember a year ago when you had that yucky chicken? Um, hey, how much did that affect your happiness today? Yeah. You know, I'm guessing not at all. Yeah. Um, and probably if I see you in a month, the answer is not at all. Um, and probably if I see you in a week, I'm guessing probably the bad chicken that you had on Monday doesn't really affect your happiness on Sunday. I'm just assuming. Sure. So what that tells you is that that's the type of decision that just doesn't, doesn't have a lot of impact on whether you're going to gain or lose ground in terms of trying to achieve your goals, where happiness is just sort of like a way to think broadly about what your goals are, because we assume that all of your goals are to try to make you happier. So, sure. So if we take a step back and we say, doesn't matter whether the chicken or fish was good. It doesn't, it's not going to change, you know, my happiness. Then why are you taking so much time on that, that decision? Why don't you spend your time doing something that is going to have an impact on your happiness? Um, and there's all sorts of decisions that fall into that category. Like I think that when you add up how long people will take to do something on Netflix, what to wear and what to eat, 
uh, there it's like six to seven work weeks a year yeah. in terms of the amount of time. Mm-hmm. Think about what you could do with that time. Uh-huh. You know, you could learn to like ski moguls or something in that time. I don't know. Like you could do something super fun. So anyway, so that, that's kind of the impact side. And then the other thing is the options. Um, and basically what we can kind of think about like, uh, well, if the worst thing that can ha- that you know, if, if the bad stuff kind of re- reveals itself and, and does actually occur, one of the things that you can think about is how easy is it for me to get out of it? Yeah, sure. If it's really easy for you to kind of stop and go back and do a different thing, then that's another reason that you should just kind of go fast. So super simple example that I think everybody will relate to. If you're having a bad date, it's pretty easy to get out of it, right? Like, you know, we've all had like the friend call us in the middle of the date. I'm married. It's not as easy. <laughs> well, no, that's what I'm going to say. But back when you were dating, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. I'm married too. But back when you were dating, it's like the friend calls in the middle. It's like, hey, how are you doing? And then if it's going really bad, it's, I'm sorry, I have an emergency. I have to go, right? You know, but you, it's pretty easy to sort of unwind it and be like, okay, I'm just going to get out of it. But if you're married, eh, nobody can call you in the middle of your marriage and you're like, I'm sorry, I have an emergency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's not that you can't get out of it. You can. It's just that it's really hard and it's expensive and it's not easy to get back to, to choose a different option, right? Like we know divorce is messy and it's emotionally messy and it costs a lot of money. Same thing, like if you rent a house, it's a lot easier to get out of a lease than it is if you buy a house and you're trying to sell a house, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually very hard to do um, depending on the market. Like sometimes the market's speedy, but you're a little bit at the behest of luck. And then you also still, there's costs associated. Like you've got to go find another house and you see how it's painting. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we can think about that. And what I think is interesting with that one is that, you know, people talk a lot about stick-to-itiveness, you know, like this, like Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. But what we know is that it's not that you can spend 10,000 hours at anything and succeed. Cause I can tell you, I could spend 10,000 hours in voice lessons and I still would not be able to sing on key. It's that we want to be kind of choosy about what are the things that we're sticking to mm-hmm. and what aren't we. So we want to sort of figure out the things that it's worth it to put the time into. And you do that by actually looking at your decisions is how quittable are they? Because the more quittable they are, like dating, the more that you can try stuff to try to figure out what are the things that I like and that I actually do want to stick to. Sure. So voice lessons might not be for me, but I could try piano lessons or guitar lessons or something else musical, or if I figure out that that's not really my category, I could play tennis or I could try skiing or I could, you know, and I sort of try these things where I can, it's, it's pretty low lift. It's not a big impact. If it doesn't go well, I can quit it. So make sure. And then I can figure out what I want to actually spend my time doing. Yeah. Make sure we're aware of the sunk cost and on the decisions that that sunk cost is easy to walk away from. No big deal. That's right. Yeah. You know, and obviously, you know, obviously this is, you know, Jeff Bezos calls this like, you know, two-way door versus one-way door decisions. Uh, people call them type one versus type two decisions. You know, there's all sorts of language around this, but it's really just how easy it is to quit. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you approach a decision, the easier it is to quit, the faster you can go. Because it, it just means that there's not that big a penalty for not taking your time in this. And that's what we're always trying to figure out. What's the penalty for not taking your time? And if it's pretty low impact, there's not going to be a lot of penalty. It's not going to make a difference. And if you can quit it, you also lower the penalty. That's, that's, another, that's another thing that you can do. Um, the last thing is that sometimes you can make more than one choice at once. So that's another way to, to make it so there's less of a penalty. 
like, for example, when you're looking at a stock, you're making some estimate, but it's subjective, right? Because we don't have all the information that we need about that stock going up in the future. So I'm saying like, if I buy a stock, I think it's more likely than not that I'm going to win money to it. But obviously there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And like, even if we did know, it's still like a coin flip. And even if the coin will land head 60% of the time, it could be the 40% of the time I see tails. Um, so that's kind of like a, it's a tough decision if you could only invest in one stock, but we know we could invest in a whole bunch of stock. And so that allows us to say, I've got 300 coins that are all flipping at once where they're all 60, 40. So now I'm just, I'm just making it much less likely that what happens to one of the stocks really matters. And that allows me to also go faster because I don't have to put all my eggs in one basket, right? I can spread them out across different decisions. And that's also a little bit like dating, dating versus marrying is sort of good for all of this, right? If the date goes badly, it doesn't really, matter. you know, if it goes bad in the normal way, obviously make that clear. It's pretty easy to quit, right? I can just not go back out on a date with that person. Or frankly, I can leave in the middle of lunch or whatever, or dinner. Um, and you can do all, a lot of it at once. I can date many people at once. But marriage is the flip side of that, right? It's very, it's, it, marriage certainly is going to have an impact on your term happiness. You can do it in parallel, but most people don't. The, the usual thing is that most people don't marry more than one person. And boy, it's awfully hard to quit. Yeah. That's by design, right? Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So, and you, so if you can start to frame your decisions that way, then, then that can really tell you where you're supposed to be spending your decision-making. Then on a decision where the Paris versus Rome they're both good choices. So we're, we spend all this time agonizing over something that either one we're going to be happy with. Yeah. So that's actually, so, so that's a really interesting problem that has sort of some different qualities than the ones we just discussed. So I call them uh, those decisions, sheep and wolf's clothing, as opposed to the old wolf and sheep's clothing, uh, because they look really difficult, but actually they're quite easy. And the thing that signals to you that they're so easy is that the decision is really hard. I mean, it feels hard and uh, but that actually tells you the decision is easy. So if we think about going back to that decision process where you think I have option A and option B, and uh, sometimes it works out well, sometimes it works out poorly, and I make some sort of estimate of how likely it is to work well, out well and how likely it is to work poorly. When we have two options where, where we're really having trouble deciding between the two, what that means is that that process we just went through, Paris or Rome, that the possible outcomes and how likely those things are to occur are pretty close to each other, could even be identical, but, but maybe they're not quite identical, but whatever our ability to discern between the two, when we're dealing, you know, with a lack of information and we don't have time travel machines, we're, we're not going to actually be able to see what the difference between the two is. So what that's telling you is you've done your work, right? You, you compared the two options in a way that's sort of thinking about what's the likelihood that this is going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they're pretty identical. So then what happened? we have the illusion that we should be able to figure out the difference between them. And so now we're like on TripAdvisor and we're doing all this, you know, we're talking to everybody and we're finding everybody who went to Paris and Rome and we're looking at a billion pictures on the web and looking at reviews and, you know, all this stuff. And, and we're doing it to try to parse out like the tiniest little difference in, in what the quality of our life is going to be. Because is your life really going to be that difference whether you choose Paris or Rome? Like, Probably not. And all that time that you're spending doing all of that research and creating all that anxiety for you is stuff where you could be doing other things. You'd be mm -hmm. taking singing lessons. <laughs> you could be going on dates. You could be playing tennis. You could be mm -hmm. whatever. You could be get, preparing your presentation for the next day that might get you a promotion, whatever. They're going to get you a lot more than actually trying to 
decide between those two things. So you need to let go of the illusion that you can somehow tell these things apart and just go ahead and flip a coin. And like all of what all of this kind of tells you is that you should be approaching decisions using what I call the menu strategy. So I've got a menu and I look at it and I say, here are the things that I don't like. Ooh, it has eggplant in it. I hate eggplant. So I don't like that. Um, or in my case, I'm a vegan, so I can get rid of all the things that have dairy and, and meat in them. Anything with an animal product, I'm not going to, right? So I can get rid of all the stuff that isn't an option for me. And you can see this a little bit with your friend with the 15 minutes in the menu, right? It's like they've gotten it narrowed down into here's all the stuff I don't like, but here are the things that look good to me. And now they treat it like Paris or Rome, right? And they're, it's like, I can't decide between the chicken and the fish. What am I supposed to do? And the answer is flip a coin because now you've gotten to the picking part of the process. So we want to make a distinction between sorting, which is how do I sort the choices that I have into good ones and bad ones? But once you have them in a bucket of these are all pretty good, now you want to just pick among them. And one of the ways to figure out is this one of those things that belongs in that, that sort of good enough bucket such that I could flip a coin between them is to apply the only option test. So basically we can do this with Paris and Rome. Hey, uh, when it's not COVID, if Paris were your only choice to go on a vacation, would you be happy with that choice? And I assume the answer is yes. And if I said, okay, if Rome is the only option for your fabulous European vacation, would you be happy with that choice? And I assume the answer is yes. And so once you've got, once it's passed the only option test, you can pretty much flip a coin. We can see this, like that's the whole point of the menu problem, right? If the only thing that you could have is this chicken that's so attractive to you, would you be happy with it? Yes. If the only thing you could have is this fish that's so attractive to you, would you be happy with that? And the answer is yes. Okay, great. Flip a coin. So you should treat your decisions like you would treat a restaurant menu if you were thinking rationally. Sort out the stuff you don't like, find the stuff that passes the only option test, and then flip a coin. And you'd call that a category a category decision? You're just cutting out a whole category of things you don't even want to partake in? Yeah, so a category decision is a, is a way to help with the sorting problem. We, we have goals, and there's different ways that we can sort of state those goals. So I could state my goal as I'd like to reduce the number of animal products that I eat. Now, notice that the way that I've said that, every time I look at a menu, every time I'm trying to choose what I'm going to eat, I now have to approach the sorting problem anew. Is this a time when I'm going to sort of exercise my option to sort of not eat meat? Or is this one of those times when maybe I will because I have this overall goal of eating less of it? So now I've got to make a new decision when I approach that menu, right? So my sorting becomes harder. Mm -hmm. There's more load to the sorting because I also have to be thinking about, well, I want to eat less of this. So how could I actually execute on that goal given that I'm looking? But if I make a category decision in advance, in other words, I turn that into, instead of saying, I want to eat fewer animal products, I say, I am a vegan. So now I've said there's whole categories of things that I won't even consider. That's what it is. And I've done that in advance. When I approach the menu now, I'm not making new decisions about that particular. So I can just sort them all out. And, you know, this is like people talk about uh, like investing, wanting to stay in your circle of competence. Category decisions go into this, like that you figure out what am I good at? What am I not good at? What types of decisions can, you know, would be things that I'm allowed to make and what aren't I? So, you know, as an example, if, if you're a bond investor, it would be good for you to not trade options. 
But you can do that if you, instead of saying, you know, generally I kind of, you know, I, I want to be more trading bonds. And instead, if you say I'm a bond investor and I don't do this other stuff, it stops you from sort of fooling yourself. You know, when we go back to the problem with, with uh, your bands being too narrow, right? Like that's just overconfidence. And we tend to think that we're better at things than we are. So it's kind of stops you from fooling yourself into making a bad decision. Maybe you can give us some quick advice when you're asking others for advice. Sure. The single best thing you can do to help your decision-making is when you ask for somebody's advice, don't tell them what you think. So if you say, like, let's say you're on a hiring committee and you're trying to figure out whether you want to hire somebody, instead of me going to you and saying, well, I really like this candidate and I think their CV is really strong. um, And I talked to their references and they just blew me away. And I could see this person being with us for five years and being a total superstar. What do you think? Which is, I think, how most conversations go, at least that I've seen. Uh, what's the point of my just asking you? I just put you in a position where if you disagree with me, I forced you to do something uncomfortable, which is disagree with me. And it might be worse than that because I might change your opinion in everything that I said. So if I don't want to sort of trap you inside my own inside view, and I actually want to explore what your thoughts are, it's better for me to say, hey, you saw that candidate too. What do you think? Right on. That's great advice. Hey, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke, and you can also go to my website, which is AnnieDuke.com, and uh, you can pretty fi- much find anything over there about me, including a way to write into me. Um, and I love having conversations with people who hear me on podcasts or read my books. And so I, I, I'm not 100% at responding. I'm probably about 90%, but it's not because I don't want to. It's just, uh, you know, time or it gets buried in my email. Well, How to Decide comes out October 13th. 2020. Thank you so much, Annie Duke, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. That wraps up another episode of the Persuasion Play podcast today with Annie Duke. Appreciate everyone for listening. For more information about persuasion, motivation, influence, mindset, and marketing, check out persuasionreadinglist.com. Have additional podcasts available there, hundreds of blog articles, and an email list. Sign up, persuasionreadinglist.com. This is Jeffrey. Have a great day. 